David Michelini and Todd McFarlane's run continues into Amazing Spider-Man 304, a cover that gives back fetishists everything they've ever wanted. In fact, Spidey's back dominates so much of the cover for issue 304, there's barely any room for McFarlane's oddly proportioned thighs, although there will be ample opportunity to catch up with them throughout the issue. The Fox, notorious gentleman thief, is back in a story called California Scheming, which opens with a rather funny scene wherein Peter Parker learns that Wilton Books wants to publish a glossy hardcover collection of his Spider-Man photos, entitled, appropriately enough, Webs. The contact made with Peter is actually a mere formality on the publisher's part, as, much to Peter's dismay, he learns that he has no copyright ownership over his own pictures, and isn't entitled to a single penny. Given where McFarlane's career would lead him, this was all rather amusing. The Daily Bugle own his pictures, lock, stock, and negatives. Jonah, being Jonah, offers Peter a $100 stipend. Generous to a fault. However, the publishers of the book are a tad more reasonable. They will pay for Peter to go on an all-expenses-paid promotional tour, for which he won't be paid, per se, but he will get royalties. Royalties that could earn him upwards of $25,000, which in today's money is on or around $52,000. Not bad, but I query the language. Peter could earn that much. Then again, he may not. Still, the trip won't cost him anything, so he agrees. The publishers also want Spider-Man in on it, but Peter demurs, feeling that Spider-Man would steal the limelight, and he wants all of this for himself. This was a nice touch. Peter, being in competition with himself, hasn't been seen in the strip for a while, although the whole plotline seems like it's taking Peter a little further away from his everyman status. Peter's not that relatable when he's a published author, married to a supermodel, and appearing on chat shows. It makes him a wish-fulfillment character, like Batman, as opposed to the hero that could be you. The art is also a bit squiffy. The book has now gone bi-monthly, forcing McFarlane to take on an inker, in this case Joe Rubenstein. I don't know if it's Rubenstein or McFarlane's fault, therefore, that Peter seems to have put an awful lot of weight on around his arse and thighs, which frequently look disconnected from his hips. The story continues as Peter swings around New York thinking about the events. He stops a gambling-related beating and then heads home to tell Murray Jane about the book deal and then drops by Aunt Mays to tell her the news. The next day, he and Murray Jane bump into their neighbour, Jonathan Caesar, who isn't at all creepy. This is called foreshadowing, kids. Two weeks later, they are on a private jet and pootling around Disneyland, presumably on the publisher's dime, although I don't know how we can write off a trip to see Mickey on expenses. A slight colouring goof makes the scene transition on page 12 not work quite as well as it might. Elsewhere, the Black Fox has learned that Mr. and Mrs. Osgood Hempstead, don't you know, are vacationing in Geneva for six months, and he takes up residence in the Beverly Hills mansion, 
even calling ahead to tell the security service that they will be allowing a guest to stay. The fox has style. He's decided to try his luck in LA, because even though he's an international jewel thief, he's never pulled a job though. And besides, if there's any work, he's not going to run into Spider-Man. It's 5,000 miles away from New York. Right? Wrong! Because, I'm, I'm sure you all saw this coming, Peter, MJ and the Fox all end up at the same gala. I know, right? What are the odds? Now, let's be honest. Peter and Mary Jane's reason for being here is specious. Apparently, the publisher thinks Peter being at a special black tie event celebrating the recent recovery of the Valencia Chalice would be good publicity for his book about Spider-Man? Because Spider-Man once stopped the robbery of a ancient relic or, or something? I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, so let's not think about it too much. Because... It all turns out to be a good move when the fox tries to steal the chalice and Spider-Man stops him. MJ spins it as Spider-Man decided to join them on the tour after all, but only for special occasions. And the fox gets away empty-handed. Or does he? Again, nothing wrong with this story. It moves along nicely, looks good, some basic artistic anomalies aside, and once again the final fight scenes are well choreographed by McFarlane. McAlini sprinkles in some nice comedy bits as well. Spider-Man dives after a priceless artefact, knocked off its perch by the fox, only to learn it was a knockoff made in Hong Kong. However, it's all a little too slick. Things are going far too easily for Peter, which means a fall must surely be just around the corner. And this is all being set up very nicely. The fox, however, has doubled back, the sneaky devil, and Spider-Man, caught up in signing autographs, is completely oblivious to this development. He's also completely oblivious to Spawn, sorry, the Prowler, arriving on the scene, informing the fox that the chalice is now his. But, but, but what's occurring? The Prowler isn't a bad guy, is he? Well, lovely listener, should we find out? Amazing Spider-Man shoe 305 has Spider-Man emerging from spot... Sorry! The Prowler's cape as the Prowler cuts Spidey's web. This seems largely pointless as Spider-Man is stood on the floor. McFarlane apparently couldn't be arsed drawing the insides of the Prowler's cape, so he's just a big purple void. Curiously, the title of last issue's story, California Scheming, is on this cover, which implies it may have been planned as the cover of last issue. If this was indeed a last-minute change by editorial, it's a good one, as it preserved the surprise last panel appearance of Spot <coughs> the Prowler. Westwood Woe apparently had seven inkers to help with the deadlines, and they are listed in the letters pages as Hector Calazzo, Christopher Ivey, Ken Lopez, Mark McKenna, Rodney Ramos, Pat Redding, Joseph Rubenstein, and Jim Sanders III. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, that's eight names. Well, yeah. Apparently, somebody can't 
count, but let's just move on. As Spider-Man is signing autographs, one to Abraham Lincoln, apparently, the fox is told to hand over the chalice to the prowler. Fortunately, at this moment, Spider-Man makes his excuses and finds the duo, just as things are about to get ugly. However, the fox flees, as Spidey listens to the prowler tell him that there is a method behind his madness, and to meet him at the Algonquin Hotel. He also drops the name Transcore. Well, actually, the prowler tells Spidey to meet him back here, presumably where the gala is being held, which I'm presuming is also the Algonquin Hotel, but, you know, it may be a lettering error, who can say. Spidey lets him go, feeling that Hobie Brown is a good man, and there has to be a reason he's turned thief, even if it means Spider-Man himself will be blamed for the theft. Spidey feels like even more of a chump the next day, when he arrives at the Algonquin, only to be told Hobie has checked out. It's a good opening, fun. We take Spider-Man's side, allowing Hobie to leave in good faith due to his past appearances in the comic and his previous relationships with Spidey, and his betrayal feels personal. The middle of the issue is taken up by Peter Parker appearing on the Johnny Carson show and Murray Jane in a bikini. The bikini stuff is fun. Peter Parker TV star, as mentioned, is one more step away from the hero that could be you. Following the Carson appearance, Peter overhears a convenient TV news story about Transcor and follows up on it by web-swinging over to Transcor Towers, where he bumps into the Prowler. Prowler! a.k.a. Hobie Brown, tells Spider-Man that his wife Mindy is headed to jail after being set up with a set of false accounting books by a guy named Hammer. The real information is hidden on a jewel in the chalice, which Transcore discovered. They both eavesdrop on a conversation that says they have found the fox and the chalice at Long Beach, with the fox about to leave the country. From here on in, it's all about the climax. Spidey and the Prowler tackle Transcore's goons and prevent them from killing the Black Fox, and they recover the chalice, leading to Mindy being cleared. It's all wrapped up rather neatly, with even the Fox getting away thanks to Spider-Man's soft nature. So far, the take Michelinie seems to have settled upon is that old 70s TV standby, the Wandering Man. Popularised by The Fugitive and used in shows as diverse as The Incredible Hulk, Kung Fu and even Quantum Leap, the stories centre around Peter and MJ rocking up in town, solving a problem and moving on to the next town, like a cut-price version of Jonathan and Jennifer Hart. It's not a premise that can be sustained, but it's fun whilst it lasts. Issue 306 has an incredibly cute cover, homaging Spider-Man's first appearance in Action Comics number 1, as this issue came out around the time of that comic's 50th anniversary. For some reason, Spider-Man is hurling a police car into a fountain, its blazing engine offering a clue as to why this might be. Humbugged opens with a cool splash. Spider-Man, as seen through the lens of a camera, spurts webbing all over the view, telling the photographer to back off. McFarlane follows this up with a really funny first panel on page two, whereby Spider-Man has two webbed-up criminals under his arms, whilst his other hand waggles a warning finger at the cameraman as two coppers laugh in the face of the criminals Spider-Man has caught. We learn that all the cameramen really want is a quote. They don't really get superheroes dropping criminals off in their police precinct every day. But Spider-Man's a massive jerk to them, something he at least has the self-awareness to recognise as he swings away. It's good that Spider-Man has this self-awareness, realising what a prick he's being. 
because these guys didn't really deserve this, they aren't invading his privacy or sticking a camera in his face at an inopportune time. Spider-Man is at a police station dropping off criminals. It's news. Spider-Man looks particularly puffy in the panel where he swings away. A page of beauty shots of Spidey swinging across the city follows, where Peter's expositional thought balloons bring us up to date on the story so far. He arrives home, having changed to his civvies, and offers MJ a single red rose. Ah, Jonathan Caesar then arrives and completely upstages Peter with a veritable flower shop of roses. He's all charm and smarm, and MJ plays the game, but after he leaves, after he invites them both, reluctantly, to a party on Friday night, Mary Jane says Caesar's flowers will be going to the cleaning lady, and Peter's rose will take pride of place on the fireplace. Smooth, MJ. Smooth. This is really a cute scene. Caesar is all over MJ like a bad rash, and she handles it with aplomb, the measured practice of someone used to fending off unwanted advances while still keeping it classy. Peter is the insecure one here. Mary Jane knows what she's doing. Caesar is a subplot, as is the Black Cat, dropping by Peter's old apartment to reignite their old flame. She's clearly unaware that he's both moved and is married. Something to ponder later. For another subplot, this time in Chicago, sees a big business type named William Duquesne have his company taken over by... William Duquesne? What's occurring? Elsewhere, a young man named Buck Mitty, perhaps a relation of noted fantasist Walter, is tooling around with a costume of some kind to make him into humbug. There's little motivation given to humbug here, presumably because Michelini did all that heavy lifting when the character appeared in an issue of Web of Spider-Man, but it gets us from point A to point B, which is the next day, where Peter is signing copies of Webs at a university in Cleveland. The first autograph hunter drops a bag of comics, one of which is Action Comics issue 285, the first appearance of Supergirl. Peter admits to having had a bit of a crush on the girl in the miniskirt, and MJ buys the comic for him later. Aww. See, the guy was on his way to a comics expo to sell the comic to pay for his college tuition. Yeah, right. And he looks like a caricature, but I haven't been able to place him. Someone I have been able to place is editor Jim Salakrup, who is in line to see Peter. Michelini seems to be having fun satirising a writer's signing, perhaps drawing upon his own experience at Comic Cons. But what about Humbug, I hear you ask, the character upon whom this story is named? The character after whom this story is named? Well, lovely listener, Humbug is at ESU. He's annoyed that they fired him as a professor of entomology, and now he's out for revenge. He's going to rob some rare paintings as payback, use the money to fund his research, and thus ESU will be funding his work anyway, as they would have done had they not fired him. Clever. Or not. By sheer dumb coincidence, Aunt May, round at Peter and MJ's for a spot of late tea, asks Peter about his application for his assistantship grant. Apparently Peter forgot to turn this in. Guess what? He'll have to go over to ESU to deliver the application in person because he's missed the deadline for using the postal service. What are the odds? Alas, it's Friday night. 
So Mary Jane must go to Caesar's party alone whilst he swings over to ESU and drop off the farm. Though he runs into Humbug and I'm sure you can guess the rest. It's a brief and unspectacular fight played primarily for laughs as it concludes with Spider-Man threatening a jar full of bugs with death. Michelini plays this for all the stupidity he can and McFarlane's art does the job, although there are scenes where the perspective is well off. The panel where Spidey saves Humbug from falling out of the window, for instance, makes him look like a giant in comparison to the building. Over at Caesar's party, Peter stops a jerk from hitting on MJ, but reveals to Caesar she will be alone on Monday night as Peter has a signing in Chicago. That was a little bit silly of them. Hmm, what else was happening in Chicago? Oh, yes, the subplot with William Duquesne. It turns out Duquesne has been replaced by the chameleon. Bum, bum, bum. This issue is the very definition of meh. It's not bad, but it's certainly not good. It's fluff, pure and simple. Nice fluff, comfy fluff. Not that irritating fluff you find in your belly button, but still fluff. On to issue 307, whose cover is a close-up of the chameleon's face, but he's wearing a representation of Spider-Man's mask. The chameleon has no nose. How does he smell? Terrible! <laughs> I'll be here all week. The thief who stole himself starts the trend of McFarlane being incredibly thick with his inking line, making the splash page look like it's been left in the toaster for too long. There's a heavy black border on the splash page and a number of panels throughout where the background is blacker than a dark night of the soul. Still, the issue gets off to a humorous start, with MJ being recognised in the grocery store as being the model on the cover of Shape magazine. The cover of the magazine has a headline, Dieting with Peter David. McFarlane throwing shade or an acknowledgement that David had recently lost weight? Who can say? The woman, a quite lovely bit of character work from McFarlane, oozing a face of a life well lived, asks Murray Jane for her autograph on the cover of the magazine, Strike a Pose, but thinks Peter is Irving Sprinkle, someone she went to PS62 with. I have no idea what a PS62 is, but Peter being flustered and MJ's quiet laughter is a joy. At home, Peter and Murray Jane are unpacking groceries when Jonathan Caesar pops by. Peter is pissed off. Sees them more than he is. Peter maintains that there isn't a jealous bone in his body as he inadvertently crushes a can of coke. Again, MJ, mildly amused by the whole thing, refrains from telling Peter they can put that jealous bone in her body and tells him Caesar is nothing to worry about. Just as we cut to Caesar entering his shrine to MJ which contains pictures, a sculpture of her naked, and numerous items of memorabilia devoted to MJ's career, including the smallest bikini I have ever seen. The sculpture implies MJ has done nudes, tasteful, I'm sure, which negates future storylines by both Peter David and Eric Larson, where MJ is considering going nude for her career as a major plot point. Peter heads to Chicago for his web signing, which Michelini again plays mostly for laughs. But Peter also gets some time off in the Windy City, and whilst there he goes to see Dr. Edmund Debevic speak. Debevic is an expert on superconductivity, and an appearance by him is a rarity. One of the things I like about this issue is that everyone is a nerd about something. 
MJ's fan in the grocery store, the kid at Peter's book signing, Peter himself with Debevic. Even Caesar is clearly here to be a nerd about Murray Jane, but show the danger when nerdery goes too far. It's a nice touch. But what of the chameleon, I hear you cry in chorus? Well... He's having a reminisce of all the times he fought Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man 1, 80 and 186, fact fans. And how he got all caught up in vengeance and such. What a waste of time that was. So he's back to just conning people, living well, being the best revenge and all, but with an overall goal. The utter destruction of the United States, politically, economically and strategically. <laughs> How he'll achieve this when he's sitting around watching old horror movies all day isn't entirely clear. The Chameleon has the only VCR in history that takes its tapes in sideways. Honestly, had McFarlane ever seen a video recorder? And the scene is here solely so the Chameleon can monologue about how he has new powers, new costumes and new tech, making his mimicry more effective than ever before. It's all comic book science, so best to just go with it. Again, you seasoned comic book readers can see where this is going, right? The chameleon needs Debevic, bringing he and Peter Parker into each other's orbit. The action beat here is really fun and funny. Michelini is really emphasising the entertaining aspect of Spider-Man's fight, particularly the guy who Spidey lectures about not firing his gun as, webbed to his hand as it is, it'll probably blow his arm clean off. Spidey overhears two cops talk about the captain, Turner, taking Debevic into protective custody. I'm wondering how the hell he could do that when he's back at HQ. Spidey smells a rat. Meanwhile, the chameleon is going to steal Debevic's formulas and distribute them to various foreign powers, destabilising the US's position just as he's using Duquesne to ruin America's business interests. Ah, so that's how he's going to do it. Spidey foils this plan and corners the chameleon in a cinema, where the chameleon takes hostages and ruins a screening of Rambo 3. A blessing for all the cinema patrons, I would have thought. In rescuing the civilians, Spidey must allow the chameleon to escape. Now this is more like it. It's just as fun, frenetic and fanciful as the last issue, but with an actual villain. Chameleon is a tried and true bad guy, and although Michelini plays a lot of this for comedy, the chameleon is played straight, and it's a joy to read. McFarlane's heavy inks are a bit much, especially in the glossy omnibus, but the art itself carries the story well, with a lot of ridiculous poses and Murray Jane cheesecake. Speaking of which, Murray Jane is at a swimsuit photo shoot. Yowza! Quite hot in 1988. However, her return home is marred by Jonathan Caesar, who, with some goons, takes Mary Jane away. On the cover to issue 308, Spider-Man threatens Taskmaster, not Greg Davis, in a graveyard. And McFarlane's heavy black line work works really well on this cover. Dread, not the judge, is the title of the story. Peter, wearing the same jacket as the police inspector, currently looking for clues in his house but in a different colour, has reported Mary Jane missing and the cops are pouring over the apartment. There's not a lot else they can do without a clue, of which there are none, and Peter is told to wait by the phone. However, Sergeant Talk, the police officer in question, it's unclear if his name is Peter, doesn't know what we know, that Peter Parker 
it's Spider-Man, and he sets off on his own investigation. Something we are privy to, that Peter is unaware of, is where Mary Jane is. Ironically, she's but a few floors down, being kept prisoner by Jonathan Caesar, who, like Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, wants Mary Jane simply because she's something he cannot have. The first half of the issue is really good. Heck, it's all good. McFarlane throws his all into the art, which is detailed and impressive. His storytelling skills have really improved over the past couple of months. The heavy inks really suit the darker tone of the story. McAlini's script is likewise simple but effective. Of course, Peter isn't just going to sit still when he can swing around looking for Mary Jane himself, and page seven is a great splash page of Spider-Man doing just that. Characterisation is spot on. Peter, determined and resolute. Mary Jane, not willing to take crap from Caesar, and Caesar, for his turn, being smarmy and charming until he starts hitting MJ for her insolence. I hate women beaters. I hate them, Jock. And I want Spider-Man to own this creep far more than the generic bad guy of the month. Spidey hits up Chili Bono, notorious snitch, for information. And he learns that there's a player in town talking revenge. Peter's concern that this is a directed hit by someone who's figured out he's Spider-Man are ringing true. Spidey learns it's Taskmaster, and it isn't targeted revenge. Simply Taskmaster training people to be thugs, as per his new M.O. The latter half of the issue is a great action spectacular, McAlini using the graveyard setting to highlight McFarlane's talents. Particularly impressive are the almost splash pages of Spider-Man taking down his foes, albeit with a little more brutality than is normal, and the shot of Taskmaster emerging from the headstones, headstones bestowed with the names of all the primary Spider-Man artists that have gone before. Whilst it's a little early in the marriage to be doing the Murray Jane has been kidnapped run, it's all impressive, and an argument can be made that this is nothing to do with Peter. Mary Jane would have been targeted by Caesar whether she was married to Peter or not. The issue concludes with Peter looking out across the city. As far below, in the same building, Mary Jane looks out upon the same view. Issue 309, the last for today, has a cover dominated by Mary Jane's face, with Spider-Man and this issue's villains, Sticks and Stone, reduced to mere cameos. Sticks and Stone also provide the title for the issue, an issue that sees Caesar make a fatal error. On the grapevine, he hears that Spider-Man is looking for Mary Jane, and believing it's because he owes Peter a favour, he calls in two mercenaries, the aforementioned Sticks and Stone. However, it's not Sticks and Stone who find Spidey. Caesar himself gives the game away. He sees Spider-Man swinging by, unbeknownst to him because Spider-Man lives in their own building. Thinking he's been caught, though, he sicks the duo on Spider-Man. But Spider-Man beats them thanks to Mary Jane, who escapes on her own, and then saves Spider-Man by shooting at Sticks and Stone with a gun she picked up at Caesar's. This is an entertaining enough wrap-up to the storyline. I get what Michelini is going for by having Mary Jane essentially rescue herself, but this is also the second time in less than a year he's had MJ be terrorised as an impetus for Peter to go into action. Also, Peter really does make this all about him, thinking this has to be because someone has learned his secret. Whereas if he'd stopped for a moment and thought about it, he may have put it all together. Still, there is fun to be had and some fun to be made of the issue. The opening seems a little thin on the inking line, so much so that the reproduction isn't very good, either in the original issue or in the omnibus. 
It's a good opening, though, as Spider-Man takes on Manslaughter Marsdale, a nothing villain who reminded me of Man Mountain Marco. There's then some requisite gargoyle squattage where Spider-Man, in his frustration, knocks the head off one of his rooftop companions. He catches it before it can fall and potentially kills someone, but then webs it back into place? I mean, sure, he says he'll call the building inspector to fix it at taxpayer's expense, I'll wager, but seemingly forgets that after an hour his webbing will dissolve and it'll fall anyway. I don't know what building inspectors are like in New York City, but I doubt they'll get there within the hour. Elsewhere, Mary Jane tries to escape by getting Caesar to smack himself in the face with ice cubes. Honest, look at the panel on page 7. McFarlane does not draw that to look like MJ throws ice in his face. Caesar looks like he's smashing it into his own face. This escape attempt is futile, but the next one is better. Distracted by Spider-Man fighting sticks and stone, MJ smashes Caesar across the face with a lampshade and then electrocutes his bodyguards. And then she picks up a gun and runs over to Central Park where her erratic shooting causes sticks and stone to leg it. Mary Jane, clearly not a woman to be messed with. It's all as you may expect. McFarlane's panels are big and splashy and the art and story entertaining. It's a fast read, not a full meal, but a decent-sized Cornish pasty, which is not bad in comparison with the half a pasty we get with Nick Spencer's current run. The problem here is in the writing of the marriage. Peter and MJ have this kind of perfect 50s sitcom marriage that doesn't exist in the real world. And I know applying the term real world to a Spider-Man comic is a little laughsome. But here's the thing. The Spider-Man strip works at its best when the Peter Parker stuff is played as real as possible, because that offsets the fantasy of the Spider-Man aspect. At the moment, Peter and MJ are in their literal honeymoon period. They frolic and enjoy shopping and have lots of kinky sex, and Mary Jane is there to be supportive of Peter, because it's his comic, and there's little attention paid to her as a character in her own right. She gets away, alone, mostly, and makes it clear to Peter that this would possibly have happened even if she wasn't married to him. But they never even have an argument, which is not the way a marriage is. In this rereading, I don't have a problem with the marriage per se, but a tad more realism in the depiction of the marriage wouldn't go amiss. Mary Jane calls the cops, Caesar is arrested, the end. And the end from me too. Until next time, when I'll be looking at the next six also issues of the Michelini McFarlane run. Come back after these messages for the email section. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us we could make the podcasts. That they never could. In time, you will know what it is like to cross over. To feel so desperately that the comic is right, yet to fail all the same. 
dread it. Run from it. March 2021 still arrives. Evacuate the network. Engage all defenses. And get this man a cold Mountain Dew. Ooh, cold Mountain Dew. Haven't tried one of those. Nah, nah, nah. Make it warm. Thank you. Sun isn't something one considers when podcasting an event. But this <laughs> does put a smile on my face. You guys. The Merry Marvel Marching Society. We don't know where we're going, but we're on the way. A podcasting crossover mega event in the spirit of JL May. Coming in March 2021. Covering Marvel's fall crossover event, Axe. A vengeance. A cabal of evil threatens the Avengers and the entire Marvel Universe. Doctor Doom, the Red Skull, Kingpin, Doctor Doom, Magneto, the Wizard, Doctor Doom, the Mandarin, and Doctor Doom have banded together to pit Earth's mightiest heroes against foes they have never faced before. An array of heroes face enemies they are totally unfamiliar with. But who is secretly pulling the vengeful cabal's strings? And can the Avengers take down the true mastermind before his hidden scheme succeeds? Featuring podcasts from Third Degree Burn, Back to the Bins, Avenger Spotlight, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Time Machine, Doom Speak, Fan Holes Podcast, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Head Speaks, Into the Weird, Justice, not entirely dissimilar to Lightning, a Thunderbolts podcast, Longbox Crusade, Married with Comics, The Quantum Cast, Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, Rolled Spine podcasts, and Views from the Longbox. Marching its way to your favorite podcatchers and hosting sites in 2021. Act of Vengeance, a true story. Okay, some of you actually listened to my plea for the email section when I pointed out that it doesn't work if you don't send me emails. One of the people who stepped up to the plate was Ryan Daly. Hello, Ryan. Good to hear from you. Spidey and Sonya. Hello, Andy. I first read the delightful issue of Marvel Team Up featuring Spider-Man and Red Sonya only months ago, although it feels like a lifetime ago because it was in February 2020, just before the COVID pandemic. I found the Fireside collection of Marvel team-ups at a comic book store whilst visiting friends Luke Darb and Max Romero. As you can imagine, this was probably the last time I was truly happy. (laughs) 
Well, hopefully you've got a soul that isn't going to leave your body in a moment of true happiness. Because discovering that issue of Marvel Team, it would mean that you were now a vampire and we'd have to kill you. I sat in the passenger seat of Luke's car to flip through the fireside book, only to hear an audible crack in the spine. The book's not mine. And 20 pages separated themselves from the rest of the book. 20 pages, starting with the luscious splash of John Byrne's Red Sonja. There's got to be a metaphor in there somewhere. While I haven't read the whole of Clermont's Marvel team-up stories, the percentage that were really, really good is quite high. And while he will go down in history as the X-Men writer, and rightfully so, I have developed a much greater appreciation for his work on solo and street-level types like Power Man and Iron Fist and Spider-Woman. I concur wholeheartedly with that, Andrew says, interrupted Ryan's email. Uh, that Iron Fist run is really good. It irritated me. I love Ed Brubaker's work. I've waxed his car many, many times before. But um, when it was announced that the Iron Fist TV show was being made, Brubaker and Matt Fraction, who, who co-wrote it together, made some comment along the lines of, well, it's clearly going to be based on our run, because what other good runs of Iron Fist are there? Which I thought was a remarkably arrogant thing to say when Chris Clermont's run on Iron Fist with John Byrne was actually really solid character-based stuff. And if you can pick up the essential or the masterwork of that stuff, I heartily encourage you to do so. It's Bronze Age Marvel at its finest. It's not really difficult to get into, like some of, of the, the Bronze Age Marvel stuff is. Once you start reading it, you just tear through it. Because it, it's Clermont basically doing his X-Men structure before he really did it in the X-Men. Each issue bleeds into the next issue, and it just tells a really compelling story and burns out is really good. He's not quite at the top of his game yet, but it's still excellent, excellent stuff, and I encourage that wholeheartedly. I've never read his Spider-Woman stuff. I'm My memory of Spider-Woman, just to be a little bit sexist for a moment, is that Carmine Infantino drew a really fantastic ass. That's my abiding memory of Spider-Woman, but I may check that out if you say that that's good stuff. My mind can't help but wonder, continues Ryan, if he'd taken over Amazing Spider-Man in 1975 instead of X-Men. What might have been? Wow. That is a great what if, isn't it? What if Claremont had stayed on, on Spider-Man for 16 years? Ooh, I don't know. Because if you think about it, Spider-Man was a hit. Spider-Man was already a hit and it wasn't struggling. X-Men was a nothing book that he took to the heights that he took it to. So he was probably allowed to do whatever the hell he wanted to do with X-Men because it wasn't selling. And by the time he made it a top-selling book, it was because of what he was doing with it. And it was only when Bob Harass came along, wasn't it? He, for some reason, didn't get on with Clermont or what he was doing with X-Men that he, he basically fired him off the book, thanks, fuck off. Uh, another reason to, to dislike Bob Harass as a, as a character, I think. Anyway, continues Ryan, once again you've delivered a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed listening to the Star Wars discussion with Dr. Bill as well. I hope you have a happy holiday season, stay safe and healthy, and may 2021 treat you and your family well. Well, you as well, Ryan. You, your lovely wife and lovely child. Thank you very much for answering the call of the emails, which sounds a bit like... This is the voice of the Mr. Ons, which I can live with, quite frankly. Someone else who answered the call was Matt Prather, who has never emailed into the show before. Dear Andrew, hello, Matt. It's lovely to hear from you. Pull up a chair, sit by the fire, tell me your story. 
I have recently discovered your podcast, even better, and I've been trying to catch up to the current episodes before dropping you an email. So from the beginning of Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delights to now is a lot of wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing. It helps drown out the cacophonous bullshit that plagues my workplace. <laughs> cacophonous bullshit. That should be the name of a work-based sitcom, shouldn't it? Cacophonous bullshit. You're very welcome. I'm glad my meandering on about stuff of which I know very little and I'm completely and totally ill-informed uh, pleases you. <laughs> it's nice to know I'm not speaking into the void. You, Michael, and any of the guests you have had on have entertained me for countless hours. Again, thanks. Most of your topics are familiar to me, but others are overlooked gems and some newfound favourites. I most sincerely hope you continue on with this as long as you find your joy in the medium, and I assure you I'll be listening until you are done with it. But that awkward note, it's not awkward, Matt. It's much appreciated. Take a compliment, dude. That's that's what I've learned from this podcast. And if somebody wants to say something nice about you, take the compliment and say thank you. I, it's, it is greatly appreciated that um, I've found a lot of people through these shows that like the same shit that I do and have the same kind of irreverence for it. Nobody who listens to my stuff seems to be a dick, which um, I appreciate. Uh, you know, you cultivate your own audience, don't you? With that awkward note, I leave you to listen to this year's Christmas pod. Wonder what gifts you guys received. Thanks, Matt Prather. Well, you're very welcome, Matt. Uh, hopefully you've listened to the two, count them, two Hey Kids Comics specials that Michael and I got together to deliver for you in our bulging sack of Santa goodies to entertain your COVID Christmas where pretty much everyone is staying home and not doing anything in any way fun. Well, you know, maybe there'll be a couple of babies in nine months or... Some people were having fun. Anyway, if you want to be like Matt and Ryan um, and split the spine on your Marvel team-up books, email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and let me know what you've listened to and what you've read and what things I've introduced you to and I will tell you what other people have introduced me to. Because uh, that's one of the good things about the podcasting community. We all introduce each other to different things. I've just I've just finished the first season of The Expanse. Thanks to Bill Robinson championing that to me. And uh, it's very good. It's very, very interesting. Okay, uh, that's it for this time. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoy me skipping to the McFarlane Michelini run rather than doing Roger Stern. I will get back to that. I'll, I'll cover more Spider-Man as ever. And next time, we'll just see what happens, won't we? Take care, stay safe, wear a mask, uh, socially distant yourself, and um, I don't know why I'm saying all this, people, I've just said the people who listen to the show aren't dicks, they're probably doing all of that. It's preaching to the converted, isn't it? Uh, take care, and I will see you all again real soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>